0: Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Pawnee attorney John Echohawk's name is at the center of the most important legal decisions in the past half century. As a founder of the Native American Rights Fund and through his advocacy for Native rights, he's made a giant contribution to better the lives of all Native Americans. His vision to make substantial political, legal, and social change for Native Americans started before the end of the termination era and continues today. We'll hear from John Echohawk right after the news.
1: This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Monday marks the third day of ceremonies the Presbyterian Church has held in Juneau to apologize for its racism towards Alaska Native people. As KMBA's Rhonda McBride reports, for more than a half century, the loss of the Memorial Presbyterian Church in downtown Juneau has been an open wound. This is the day.
2: The sounds of gospel, sung in both English and Tlingit, brought healing. The choir sang in a fire station where Dr. Walter Sobolev's church once stood when he preached in the Hlinkat language and led a mostly native congregation. But in 1962, Presbyterian church leaders closed it down to make way for a new church to be led by a white minister. That church has since been renamed the Kunehidi Northern Light United Church, which means healing house. It's where national church leaders like Reverend Bronwyn Boswell made formal apologies. The
0: Presbyterian Church USA apologizes for the act of spiritual abuse. Committed by the Presbyterian Church's decision of closure.
2: Dr. Sobolev lived to be 102, but never spoke of the deep hurt he experienced. His son, Sasha, says the whole family suffered, yet never received an apology. Hearing the illustrious
3: speakers bring their word graciously brought tears to my eyes. For the first time in 52 years.
2: Sasha Sobolev offered forgiveness, which she says is necessary, to build a better future.
3: This new world
4: that is offered to us today, which comes perhaps once in a lifetime.
2: The church has also offered $900,000 in reparations. For National Native News, I'm Rhonda McBride.
0: The
1: All Pueblo Council of Governors in New Mexico is condemning violence in the town of Española, where a recent celebration was taking place by Native people and their allies over the pause of the reinstallation of a statue of Spanish conquistador Juan de Oñate. At the prayer event, a 23-year-old man wearing a Make America Great Again hat is accused of shooting an indigenous man. In a statement Friday, All Pueblo Council of Governors Vice Chairman Jerome Lucero said, It's unfortunate that during a prayer-filled ceremony that an individual was seriously harmed over this issue. Lucero goes on to state this shows historical trauma and pain inflicted on Pueblo people by Oñate is still here. Pueblo people say Oñate represents violence remembered for his cruelty. Natana Okay Winge, and Kiwa Pueblos, was among those at the event who witnessed the shooting. In an interview with New Mexico PBS, she reflected on historical trauma. The genocide, the cultural washing or the banning of traditional practices was done by folks that were brought to really colonize our communities. And so Onyate was sort of like the, the lead um, in that piece, along with other folks um, that came before him. It was basically to, to colonize and to convert native people. A lot of our historical documents really, really state that there was a lot of destruction, there was a lot of violence, there was greed. A lot of our folks were really pushed to convert. Pueblo leaders say they're concerned about the possibility of continued violence against Native people who oppose the statue. Meanwhile, the alleged shooter, Ryan David Martinez, is charged with first-degree attempted murder, as well as a fourth-degree felony count for aggravated assault with a deadly weapon. I'm Antonia Gonzalez.
0: National Native News is produced by Kiwanek Broadcast Corporation,
3: with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by AARP. AARP creates and connects people to unique tools and programs, helps conserve personal resources, and tackles issues that matter most to individuals, families, and communities. More at AARP.org support by vision maker media envisioning a world changed and healed by understanding native stories in the public conversations they generate 45 plus years of native stories and indigenous knowledge through film and media can be found at visionmakermedia.org native voice one the native american radio network
0: This is Native America Calling, your National Humanities medal-winning radio show and podcast. John Echohawk is a monumental figure in Native American law. He was a co-founder of the Native American Rights Fund in 1970 and is a driving force for many of the most pivotal Indian law cases, from treaty fishing and land rights to religious freedom and the recent U.S. Supreme Court decision affirming the Indian Child Welfare Act. Echo Hawk has received many accolades over the years. Most recently, he was awarded the 2023 Thurgood Marshall Award for his legacy of contributions to civil rights. Today, John Echohawk joins us as a native in the spotlight. We'll talk about his work on cases centered around native rights and tribal sovereignty and hear his insights on the contemporary legal landscape. As always, we welcome you, our NAC listeners, to the conversation by calling our studio here in Albuquerque, New Mexico at 1 800 996 2848. That's also 1 800 99 Native. Joining us now via Zoom from Boulder, Colorado is John Echohawk. He is a lawyer and the executive director of the Native American Rights Fund and a proud member of the Pawnee Nation. John, pleasure to have you. Join us here on Native America Calling today. Welcome.
4: Thank you, Sean. I'm very pleased to uh, be able to participate today.
0: We are pleased to have you, John. And today, of course, is Indigenous Peoples Day. And that's one of the reasons we're so excited to talk with you. And I want to ask you, John, as someone who is very dialed in and focused on the political landscape, what do you think it's going to take for the federal government to recognize Indigenous Peoples Day on the national level?
4: Well I think there's a uh, uh, growing awareness of indigenous peoples uh, in uh, in washington d c and uh, you know just the fact that that legislation's been introduced is is uh, a great step forward and I think it's probably just a matter of time till we get it uh, uh, and you know accepted as a national holiday mm-hmm.
0: But well, we're certainly paying close attention to that here on Native America Calling, as well as folks all over Native America, and it certainly will be uh, a proud, amazing day uh, when that happens, Indigenous Peoples Day recognized on the federal level. And, and John, let's talk a little bit about your background, about your history, and when you first entered law, and what was it that drew you to that profession? Jeez, uh, it's been more than 50 years now since you graduated from law school at the University of New Mexico.
4: Well, I was uh, raised in uh, Farmington, New Mexico, and uh, I had uh, a really good set of parents that uh, uh, didn't have college degrees. Uh, they knew it was really important for uh, for their kids to get college degrees because they knew that would uh, help, help us make a better living. So they really uh, had us uh, do our homework and study. So we all uh, uh, did that and made good grades, and uh, uh, I, uh, also uh, participated in uh, uh, the student Council growing up and uh, my senior year I was selected president of the student body and uh, I had a number of uh, my teachers uh, uh, say that uh, uh, I should really think about uh, uh, becoming a lawyer when uh, you know when I uh, went on to college and uh, uh that's what I decided to do was to, was to study law. So uh, after I graduated from uh, the University of New Mexico there, I uh, started law school at uh, UNM.
3: Mm -hmm.
0: So you did your undergrad studies as well as law school at UNM. Did you ever have any thought of of going back to Oklahoma for college? I know you're a big OU fan, John.
4: Uh, Yeah. Yeah. We, uh, uh, really, uh, got into OU football since we were, you know, originally from Oklahoma, especially, especially my dad. And, uh, uh, but I decided I wanted to, uh, uh, be in New Mexico where I'd probably end up practicing law. So, uh, so that's where I went.
0: Now, how old were you, John, when when your family moved from Oklahoma to the four corners area, were you young or were you born in that area?
4: Well, I was, uh, actually born at, uh, Indian Hospital there in uh, in Albuquerque. My father had uh, uh, left Oklahoma when he was a young man. His uh, He lost both of his parents when he was a young man and went out to Albuquerque to live with his uncle who lived out there because he had TB and needed a warm, dry climate. So uh, that's where my dad uh, was raised and met my mom and started his family.
0: Mm-hmm. And growing up in Farmington, tell us a little bit about the the political and the social climate dur- during that era. Did did any of that uh, inspire you to pursue law? Did you see any issues or any concerns that you thought maybe as an attorney at some point in the future, you could you could play a role in, in maybe fixing some of those issues or making life better for Native folks in that area?
4: No, I never really thought too much about it. I just had the general impression that uh, the federal government could do uh, uh, with the Indians whatever they wanted to do, and so I just never really paid much attention until, like I said, I went on to uh, to UNM.
0: And when you got into law school, John, what what were some of the, the key takeaways there when you started your, your law school journey, and what did you learn about the law, and specifically how the law pertains to Native people that you didn't know going into law school?
4: Well, I just... Uh, uh, wanted to be a lawyer. I didn't know exactly what I was going to uh, to be doing, though, as as a lawyer. But I was uh, in the right place at the right time uh, uh, when I applied to law school. Uh, um, uh, I went over to make sure they got my application and uh, also to pick up uh, information on scholarships because I had had a scholarship. Uh, academic uh, wise to go to uh, college and I needed one to go on to law school and when I got over there uh, they uh, looked at me and said you look like an Indian I said yeah they said okay can you meet with the dean and I said well I'm not even admitted I'm already in trouble and so (laughs) I went in and met with the dean of the law school and he told me that the UNM law school had just uh, been notified by the office of economic opportunity in Washington DC Uh, you know, part of the war on poverty under President Johnson that uh, they wanted the UNM Law School to uh, run a program providing scholarships to Native Americans to go to law school wherever they wanted across the country because the the powers that be back in Washington figured one of the best things they could do to help get Indians out of poverty was to get some Indian professionals because we had only a handful of lawyers and a handful of doctors. So they started providing scholarships uh, for us. And uh, those were administered out of the uh, uh, UNM Law School. And they uh, awarded me a scholarship and admitted me and uh, several other Native Americans into law school there. And then to the uh, credit of that uh, faculty there at UNM, they uh, put together one of the first courses ever taught in a law school about federal Indian law. And I didn't really know any of that, and most of the other Native students didn't either. And uh, we basically saw that uh, our Native American people had uh, substantial rights under the treaties and laws of this country that were really going uh, unenforced. And uh, uh, it was uh, partly due to the fact that uh, uh, Indians were the poorest of the poor and couldn't afford any lawyers in addition to that. The federal policy at that time in 67 uh, uh, into the late 60s was one of uh, the federal government terminating tribes, forcing assimilation of Indian people and ignoring enforcement of the treaties. So it was a very difficult uh, uh, time for our people. And uh, that's uh, you know what I studied uh, when I was in law school and uh, kind of became determined to uh, help do something about that.
0: Now what's also interesting about your time in law school John, and throughout college, is that was during the 1960s. And it was when the Native American Youth Council became very active. And we can really see the beginnings of, of the Red Power movement and what ultimately led to Native American activism. And of course, the takeover of Alcatraz at the end of the decade. And did you ever see yourself maybe going that route, John, becoming more of an activist as opposed to a lawyer? Or were you always really dialed in to the, to the law?
4: I was just really uh, dialed into the law. Uh, I uh, uh, was uh, very attentive to what was happening with the civil rights movement nationally, and uh, uh, you know that's what our Native American activists were tuned in to as well. And uh, uh, I basically saw that uh, uh, African Americans were doing well with uh, uh, their uh, assertions of equal rights uh, when they uh, went to court. They, uh, they were winning and they were doing that uh, with legal representation from the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, a National Indian Legal Defense Fund, a nonprofit raising money, uh, hiring lawyers, making them available to represent these African Americans in important uh, equal rights cases. And they were winning and uh, really started thinking that's what Native Americans need to do. We need to organize a National Indian Legal Defense Fund. Mm-hmm.
0: And, John, the day you graduated from law school, I'm curious to know your parents. Uh, they must have been there. They must have been beaming with pride. Do Do you remember what they said or, or, or what they told you when you, when you got that diploma?
4: Oh well, they were uh, uh, really very uh, uh, proud of uh, of my accomplishments, and uh, they uh, uh, really, uh, you know, saw that uh, I had. Uh, Put in uh, all the time and effort, and work, and work, uh, were they were just uh, uh, so proud of me and uh, wanted to support me in whatever I did.
0: Well, John, we're gonna go ahead and take a break here in just a, a few moments, and uh, when we come back, we're going to talk. A little bit more about not just your law school journey, but of course uh, when you became a co-founder of the Native American Rights Fund and when you actually started going out there and practicing law and when you began to take on cases and just some of these really high profile legal cases and, and some of the victories that you were involved in and then of course some of the losses too. We're gonna to talk about both uh, of those facets of your career and I do encourage any listeners to, to go ahead and give us a call if you have a question for John Echohawk, or maybe you know John Echohawk, you've come across him over the years at a conference, or, or you followed some of the, the cases that he has worked on. If you have any questions about those cases, or any questions about his career, uh, his schooling, his background, our phone lines are open right now, 1-800-996-2848. That number again, 1-800-996-2848. Give us a call and talk to John Echohawk. Scientists and climate activists are still assessing the impacts from the planet's hottest summer in human history. Young Native climate warriors are also looking for ways to get their message to the public and to those who can work to make a difference in the rapidly evolving reality. We'll hear from some of them on the next Native America Calling.
3: Support for this program provided by Vision Maker Media, who envisions a world changed and healed by understanding Native stories and the public conversations they generate. Nurturing the next generation of storytellers with courage, generosity, creativity, respect, and commitment. 45-plus years of Native stories and Indigenous knowledge through film and media can be found at visionmakermedia.org, whose slogan is, Together We Are Vision Makers.
0: Thank you for listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're discussing the contributions to Native law by John Echo Hawk. If you have a comment or question, you can join us at 1-800-996-284. 48. That's also 1 800 99 native. And a reminder you can always listen back to today's show on any of your favorite podcast platforms like Spotify or Apple Podcasts. John, before break, you, you talked a little bit about your childhood growing up there in Farmington, New Mexico. Uh, going on to University of New Mexico for law school. And I want to ask you now about the Native American Rights Fund. And um, when did you begin to work with with uh, uh, the other co-founder of, of NARF and some of the tribal leaders? How long was it between that initiative and when you finished up law school?
4: Well, I uh, uh, got a job offer uh, when I was graduating from law school from California Indian Legal Services, This was one of the uh, legal services programs set up by the uh, Office of Economic Opportunity, War on Poverty. They figured one of the best things they could do to help poor people was to provide free legal aid for them. And they set up some of these legal aid offices in Indian country. And one of those was uh, California Indian Legal Services. And uh, they were doing uh, uh, great work. And uh, they uh, offered me a job when I was graduating and I accepted
0: and what did you learn working with California Legal Services that inspired you to to look at something larger, more nationally scoped, such as NARF?
4: Well, as soon as I got out to California Indian Legal Services, uh, they told me that they had uh, just gotten a grant from the Ford Foundation in New York City to start a national Indian legal defense fund uh, because the Ford Foundation had been instrumental in starting the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, the Mexican American Legal Defense Fund, and thought it was a good idea to start a uh, Native American Legal Defense Fund, and so uh, they gave the grant to crls since they had been doing uh, great Indian law work, and so CILS, like I said, when I, as, soon as, as soon as I got out there, asked me if I wanted to work on that project, putting together a National Indian Legal Defense Fund, and that was... Uh, you know, uh, just me being in the right place at the right time, I said, sure, I've been uh, wanting to uh, help in whatever way I could, and this would really be a, a way to do that.
0: Well, tell me about your co-founder, David Getches and some of the tribal leaders who were also involved in those early years of NARF.
4: Well, David Getchess is one of the uh, lawyers working for California Indian Legal Services that uh, they put in charge of uh, this uh, Uh, National Indian uh, uh, Legal Defense Fund project and uh, working together with David and other uh, uh, CRLS leaders, we put together uh, uh, an advisory board, a steering committee of uh, Native American leaders to help us uh, organize this National Indian Legal Defense Fund. And we uh, uh, worked on that for uh, about a year before we uh, got incorporated separately and uh, decided to uh, establish the organization in uh, Boulder, Colorado, a more central location to Indian country.
0: And do you remember your first case, John?
4: Uh, Well, uh, we uh, uh, early on started uh, working on the uh, uh, Indian Treaty Fishing Rights Case up in Washington State because uh, there were Indians getting arrested up there for trying to uh, exercise their fishing rights under the treaties. And uh, it was a huge controversy there that needed to be Resolved by the courts, So uh, we that was one of the first cases we got involved in and that ultimately led to the bolt decision. Is that right? Yes, it did. Uh, We uh, uh, were lead counsel for the tribes. Uh, We got the federal government to uh, uh, join us as uh, as trustee because by that time the federal government policy of termination had uh, changed to one of self determination and uh, recognition of tribal sovereignty in the treaties. So the federal government joined in with us and uh, uh, we asserted those treaty rights in court. in uh, in 1974, the federal district court up there, uh, Judge Bolt uh, ruled that the tribes had fishing rights under these treaties, that it just wasn't uh, ancient history. Uh, Those treaties were the supreme law of the land and the tribes were entitled to uh, uh, up to uh, half of the uh, salmon fishery up there, according to the treaty language and they could uh, fish under their own tribal laws at their usual and accustomed places.
0: And reflecting back on the Bolt decision, John, how big a win was that for Indian country and in even the ripple effects that are still felt today?
4: Well, I think it was, uh, it was really huge because uh, I think uh, everybody up in that area and across the country uh, recognized that these uh, Indian treaties were not just ancient history. They were still uh, you know the supreme law of the land and that uh, uh, tribes were in a position to uh, assert treaty rights uh, across the country uh, based on that and it really got everybody thinking about doing that and it led us to do uh, other uh, treaty cases Uh, the one that immediately comes to mind is basically the the treaty fishing rights that the tribes around the great lakes had so we did their case as well and uh, there were other cases that followed
0: and when you, you won that big that big case there, the Bolt decision and then some of these other high profile cases, the Great Lakes. I mean, did, did the reputation grow? And do you remember when people really started paying attention to NARF and, and, and really started focusing on on these issues with Indian law and and what was that like during that period when when you just were gaining recognition and, and, and having these big victories for Indon Country?
4: Oh, it was uh Uh, you know very exciting uh, uh, time we had uh, uh, so many requests for assistance there was no way we could uh, help everybody and we were really appreciative of the uh, uh, priorities that had been set for our organization by this uh, uh, first uh, steering committee of native leaders that we put together that became our board of directors and uh, really helped us sort through all of the requests for assistance we got and we focused on uh, uh, the sovereignty cases the uh, uh, land the land right cases uh, fishing rights cases and uh, water rights cases and then our uh, human rights as Native Americans exercise our uh, native religions and uh, and our uh, traditional cultures. <laughs>
0: Now, John, you've been working uh, on Native rights since the the Nixon administration back in the early '70s, and and what's your assessment of of the Nixon administration? I, I know that Richard Nixon he's credited with a lot of self determination policies and even some settlements that increased uh, or returned land back to tribes and. Uh, how, how, looking back now, do you still feel that Richard Nixon was just a, a really, really good president uh, for Indian country, or, or, or maybe we're looking at rose-colored glasses? What do you think?
4: No, he was very instrumental in uh, in the uh, uh, modern-day sovereignty movement because, uh, again, he was the one who uh, who stopped this uh, assimilation and termination policy and announced in 1970, about the time the Native American rights fund was starting, that the new federal Indian policy would be one of recognition of the treaties and uh, and sovereignty of the of the uh, of the tribes and uh, uh, you know self determination. That's the new policy, and that's basically now been the policy endorsed by every administration uh, since that time. Uh, now what fifty three years the self determination era,
3: mm-hmm. and
4: uh, he did that because he was uh, uh, familiar with our Native American people. He had. Uh, a Native American that uh, uh, was one of his uh, football coaches, and uh, he uh, remembered uh, uh, his close relationship with that coach and everything, and the coach told him about Indians. And so when uh, we started asserting these rights, he understood that and uh, uh, moved to change the policy, supporting us.
0: Did you ever meet Richard Nixon, John?
4: No, I didn't, but, of course, I I read a lot about him, and uh, he, like I said, he did a lot of great things. Uh, for us. Uh, we had a lot of people uh, uh, lobbying him at that time to do that. And uh, uh, one of those people was Madonna uh, Harris, uh, uh, who was married to Senator Fred Harris at that time. And uh, she helped uh, organize a campaign there in the White House to uh, get the president to make that policy change. And it happened. And of course, Madonna uh, still lived there in Albuquerque and uh, right. you know, been a great leader.
0: Right, right. And, and, and Fred Harris was a political science professor at the University of New Mexico for many years as well. And John... And I- I find this interesting. Richard Nixon, very pro-tribal sovereignty, uh, a president that's looked upon very fondly in Indian country. Jimmy Carter, who's somebody I think a lot of people think, well, geez, Jimmy Carter would, you know, a strong Democrat, somebody who would probably really be supportive of Indian country. However, um, you were critical of, of, of Jimmy Carter and you were even quoted in a, in a New York Times article in 1978. Tell us why. why what was your issue with Jimmy Carter?
4: Well, there were uh, uh, you know all kinds of issues uh, uh, going on around that time, and uh, uh, you know he, he uh, uh, didn't agree with us on each and everything, but uh, uh, we uh, uh, really finally came together when uh, he helped us uh, orchestrate a settlement of the uh, uh, Indian land claims in the state of Maine by the Pass and Penobscot. He had uh, been very concerned about that because the tribes had claimed two-thirds of the state of Maine under a 1790 law that uh, required uh, Indian lands to be uh, 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 you know, transacted through treaties and the state of Maine never did follow that they just transacted land with uh, with those tribes without treaties and said the treaty law did not apply to them but uh, when we went to court we won, and uh, the courts were saying two-thirds of the land in the state of Maine had to go back to the tribes, and uh, of course, that was a great concern to uh, President Carter, so he uh, got us all, there, all together there in the White House, and uh, we ended up negotiating a settlement where the tribes got a lot of their land back, a lot of money for the land they didn't get back, and federal recognition for the first time.
0: hmm and then working your way up through all these different presidential administrations, the Reagan administration, uh, both Bush administrations, uh, Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, uh, which presidential administrations in your mind really stand out as being very, very receptive and supportive of, uh, Native American legal issues?
4: Well, they were, uh, uh all, uh, uh, fairly supportive, but, uh, I think the, uh, Clinton administration and the Obama administration in particular, uh, were very supportive of uh, uh, Native American rights. Uh, uh, I had been asked to uh, serve on the transition teams for both, uh, you know, the Clinton administration and the Obama administration, which I did. And they uh, wanted me to stay in Washington and uh, uh, become the Assistant Secretary for Indian Affairs. But uh I uh, turned them down because I have the best job in the world here at the Native American rights fund working for the tribes. And, uh, uh, I, uh, declined their offer, but they went on to bring in great assistant secretaries for Indian affairs and, uh, uh, really did a lot of, uh, great things for, for tribes during their administrations.
0: And John, what's your assessment so far of the Biden administration?
4: Well, from, uh, what I hear of the tribal leaders that I see at the various meetings that I go to, uh, They're saying that this is uh, really the best administration for tribes that they have ever seen, and I think that's based primarily on the fact that uh, this administration has uh, appointed so many Native Americans to key positions, uh, the main one being uh, uh, Deb Holland, uh, there from New Mexico, serving as the Secretary of the Interior. So it was just uh, an example of, uh, of the appointments that this administration has made of our Native American people to uh, high positions in Washington, Mm
0: D.C. And now reflecting back, um, can you point to maybe the most important case that you've ever worked on with NARF or or one of the most important cases or or maybe some of your favorite cases? Any highlights you can share from your many decades serving in Indian law? Uh,
4: We worked on uh, most of the major uh, cases that uh, have been around since uh, since we started in 1970 and uh, lots of progress has been made I just uh, uh, tend to focus on uh, uh, the great advances we've made in our you know social and economic development particularly uh, economic development the uh, main economic driver in Indian country these days is Indian gaming and I get asked uh, about that so many times uh, about Indians have casinos and people don't really understand that and that's due to uh, a 1987 uh, Supreme Court decision, uh, California against the Kapazan Band of Mission Indians, uh, where we uh, participated as uh, uh, filing an amicus curiae, friend of the court brief on behalf of all kinds of other tribes supporting the Capazon Band and their assertion that they could do Indian gaming under tribal law and were not bound by... Uh, the prohibitions against gaming in the state of california and of course they won based on their sovereignty that uh, tribes uh, as sovereign governments could uh, do gaming and generate uh, uh, revenues uh, uh, to support uh, tribal services uh, because they were sovereign governments and not subject to the jurisdiction of the state and uh, that's was really a a great uh, sovereignty victory and like i said it's really had tremendous implications for uh, our uh, economies that uh, are thriving today on on tribal gaming.
0: And John, what about cases that NARF has lost? Uh, Any major, major setbacks uh, that you can look back to, or perhaps regrets or maybe strategic errors that that you can point to uh, as well as some of the big wins you've had? Well, you
4: know, there's... uh, um, Uh, highs and lows, uh, you know, through all this whole period in terms of uh, uh, Indian case victories or defeats, uh, I tend to to focus on uh, uh, one uh, that was decided here recently, just uh, uh, last year affecting a a very important issue to all of Indian country, and that's the federal trust responsibility. Uh, There was a decision in the case of Arizona against the Navajo Nation, and uh, again, the Native American rights participated by filing an amicus curiae brief and uh, a friend of the court brief in support of the Navajo Nation there on behalf of several tribes. And uh, the Navajo Nation there was trying to get the federal government to uh, uh, do an assessment of their water needs there on the Arizona portion of their uh, reservation and put together a plan to address those, uh, those water needs. And uh, they were asserting that this was required under the federal trust responsibility because these Navajo Nation water rights are held in trust for them by the federal government. The federal government's trustee holds legal title to our lands and our water rights. And we're just the beneficiaries and they're the trustee, they have trust title, and uh, they ought to do what good trustees do, and that is uh, carry out their trust responsibilities to uh, uh, assist the tribes and protect those resources. And that's what the Navajo Nation had asked the federal government to do but uh, the u.s supreme court in a five to four decision says no the federal government doesn't have to do that unless there's some specific provision in a treaty or specific uh, law passed by congress that requires them to do this assessment of the water needs and put together a plan for the navajo nation and it was uh, a huge loss for us because we always felt like the general uh, duties of a trustee were uh, required by uh, or or, or were really mandated for the federal government to do as trustee. And uh, the uh, U.S. Supreme Court said no, it has to be a very specific uh, provision in a treaty or act of Congress. John,
0: we have to take a short break. I'm sorry, but we'll be right back.
3: Lakota-made indigenous first medicines and eco-friendly personal care products are small batch prepared in the Lakota traditions using sustainably harvested natural and organic ingredients, and all can be found at LakotaMade.com who support this show. Does your club, institution, or other group need custom-branded apparel? A wide variety of T-shirts, hoodies, and much more, all custom-printed or embroidered, are available from NativeScreenPrinting.com, a division of Sky Screen Printing, who support this program.
0: You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Join today's conversation with attorney John Echohawk as we discuss his legacy and contributions to the field of Native American law. Phone lines are open, folks. If you've got a question for John or you would like to give him a shout out and thank him for his long storied career in service to Indian country, phone lines are open, 1-800-996-2848. We are waiting for your call. John, before break, uh, you were sharing a a recent uh, case that uh, went against the tribes. It was a a federal trust responsibility case uh, that went against the Navajo Nation. And I've heard you say before that uh, the pendulum really swings uh, back and forth with regard to, to how well uh, Native American cases due in the courts. And a lot of cases were won back in the seventies and in the eighties and then the decade of the 1990s, not so much. Uh, there were some cases that were lost. What about right now in 2023 overall, do you think, uh, Indian country cases have a lot of momentum in the courts or, or do you see us as, as in maybe in a period of where there's a little bit of a lull? What's your thought?
4: Well, it's still kind of, uh, uh, unpredictable and, and up in the air as uh, as we just uh, witnessed here uh, during this uh, last Supreme Court term. And, uh, you know, over the years, it has uh, really kind of been that way, kind of depending on the makeup of the U.S. Supreme Court. That's primarily, you know, what we're talking about here because, of course, the court of uh, last resort. And as the makeup of the court has changed over the years, then, uh, you know, the uh, win-loss record of uh, the tribes in the and the Supreme Court has changed, and uh, that's still kind of, the, kind of the case. And we uh, always uh, continue to focus on uh, doing what we can whenever there's any uh, open seats on the courts to try to make sure that uh, there, are, there are lawyers nominated to become judges who uh, are familiar with uh, federal Indian law and tribes. And uh, we continue to do that through our judicial selection project with the National Congress of American Indians and the National Native American Bar Association.
0: John, I'm g- glad you mentioned the judges and the courts as well, because I know NARF has a, an initiative to to work towards getting a Native American Supreme Court justice at some point in the future. And um, how confident are you that that's going to happen here uh, in the relatively near future, that we'll get a Native American uh, Supreme Court justice? And what will that mean for Indian country? Well,
4: we're... Uh... Uh, like i said always trying to get uh, uh judges uh, nominated and confirmed who have uh experience in uh, federal indian law and uh, and with tribes and uh, it would be great if uh, we could get one of our own native american lawyers to uh, you know to be uh, nominated and confirmed and we've got uh, you know a growing number of native american lawyers out there uh, these days and uh, we're hoping that uh, you know one of these days one of them will uh will uh, be qualified and will be uh, nominated and confirmed and we'll finally have one of our own on the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, uh, we've uh, already got uh, uh, five Native American lawyers serving in the in the federal uh, judiciary and uh, we're hoping maybe one of those might be able to move on up to the U.S. Supreme Court eventually. Mm-hmm.
0: And, John, who uh, amongst the the young up-and-coming Native American legal minds, uh, who are some of the attorneys that that really stand out and really impress you right now?
4: Oh, wow, that's a difficult question there, Sean. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, uh, of course, really appreciate the fact that we've got a number of Native American attorneys here on our uh, uh, legal staff at the Native American Rights Fund. And uh, in particular, uh, uh, I uh, depend a lot upon... Uh, uh, the uh, deputy director of the Native American Rights Fund, uh, Matt Campbell, who's from the native village of Gamble in Alaska. And uh, Matt's really a great attorney and uh, we're really pleased to have him serving as our executive, or, uh, our deputy uh, director here and really assisting me as executive director.
0: All right. John, we're going to go ahead and take a phone call now. We have Manuela, who is listening up in Pine Ridge, South Dakota. She's listening on the station, Keeley, K-I-L-I, in uh, Porcupine Butte up there in Pine Ridge. Hello, Manuela. Welcome to the show.
2: Thank you.
1: Thank you. I just want to say thank you, John, for all that you have done and are doing. I was a student way back in the 70s. So I know of you and NARF, and I've been there many times, very proud. And I knew your sister, Lucille, uh, way back when. But just a note from us up here saying thank you for all
2: that you have done.
0: Manuela, thank you for calling in. John, please feel free to respond to Manuela up in Pine Ridge, South Dakota.
4: Well, Manuel, I, I appreciate uh, your your support, and uh, uh, glad you have uh, uh, followed uh, the Native American Rights Fund over over all the years, and been uh, been by here and uh, uh, to see us, and also to see my see my sister. My sister's uh, uh, a great supporter of ours, and uh, doing a lot for the Native American community here in the uh, in the Denver metropolitan area.
0: I'm glad that Manuela called, John, and and she reminds us that uh, there are uh, more—you have siblings as well who are also very, very high-profile, well-regarded people in Indian country. Lucille, of course, and and then you have a a brother, Larry, who's also an attorney and a legal scholar. And uh, what do you think it is about your family, the Echo Hawk family, that— that got you folks uh, so passionate and so involved uh, in Indian law and these other areas of uh, Native American service at a time when there weren't a lot of Native folks doing this kind of work?
4: Well, uh, like I said, at at the outset, uh, uh, my mother and father were very instrumental in uh, uh, urging us to, uh, uh, you know, get our educations and uh, uh, utilize that education, uh, you know, for for uh, for good things, and uh, uh, with the advent of the uh, Native American movement, uh, we just all had opportunities uh, come up in uh, in the field of federal Indian law and policy. We've all followed that, and uh, you know, we've just had uh, uh, you know great mentors like my mom and dad, and all my uh, aunts and uncles, and everybody, in, in our whole Echo Hop family. And you know, we've got, uh, as you said, a number of lawyers uh, in our family, and uh, others doing all kinds of uh, Native American advocacy, working for Native American organizations, and it's just kind of become a family tradition.
0: Well, let's go ahead and take another call now, John. Whalen is listening online in Flagstaff, Arizona. Whalen, welcome to Native America Calling.
4: Uh, thank you. My my question is, uh, in my opinion, it seems like tribes all across the country are not taking positions on these uh, issues like abortion, gun control, the conflicts in Ukraine, and now Israel, <clears throat> public school spending, and I—it just seems that way to me. Tribes are on the sidelines watching the game being played, and I asked Mister. Echohawk if he would advise tribes to take formal positions on all these issues that you know can that are facing the whole nation. Oh,
0: good question from Waylon coming in from Flagstaff, John. What do you think about that? Tribes taking a more active position on it. Uh, topics such as abortion the war in ukraine gun control thoughts
4: well that that's that's a good question i, I think uh generally uh, tribes are so busy just trying to deal with all the tribal issues which are uh, very numerous and very difficult they just uh, uh really get uh, all of their uh, time and effort uh, uh, put into those issues that affect them directly and haven't really had the opportunity and the time and everything to uh, focus on these uh, larger general issues.
0: Yeah, lots to think about, uh, lots to discuss, lots to consider. Phone line's still open, folks. Let's get another good call in. 1 800 99 Native. We still have time for a call or a comment to John Echohawk. And uh, John, another big case uh, recently through the Supreme Court ICWA, the Indian Child Welfare Act. Uh, The Supreme Court ruled in favor of upholding it. Uh, Other important laws similar to ICWA that could come under threat in the future. What's on your radar?
4: Well, uh, the uh, Indian Child Welfare Act case, of course, raised the question of the authority of Congress to uh, enact that uh, law, uh, you know, helping protect uh, tribes and their children. And uh, uh, we were lucky to, to win that case, seven to two uh, from this uh, U.S. Supreme Court. Similar arguments have been made now against the uh, uh, Indian Gaming Regulatory Act and uh, how, uh, Uh, It might discriminate against uh, other gaming businesses that are not uh, tribally owned and uh, uh, giving the tribes, uh, uh, you know, that uh, recognizing the tribes have that authority to do their own gaming somehow discriminates against white people and white businesses. So similar arguments are being made against tribal gaming and the tribal gaming law.
0: Mm -hmm. John, what do you see as the biggest threat to tribal sovereignty going forward?
4: Well, it uh, has always been, uh, uh, you know, the politics of this country. we talked about uh, how the Supreme Court uh, uh, make up changes from time to time based on the politics, you know, the nominations and all that other stuff. But, uh, that's the judiciary. There's also the uh, uh, legislative branch, the Congress. Uh, the Congress from time to time can uh, take some uh, hostile positions against tribes and, uh, of course, then administrations too, some administrations. As we talked about, are, are more supportive of, uh, of tribes and other administrations. So it's really it's really the politics, uh, you know, the administrations, the Congress, you know, the courts, and uh, all that's a political process, and it uh, just really emphasizes the importance of uh, Native Americans getting out and voting, voting for people who support Native American rights, and uh, that's uh, uh, what it's all about, and that's what we need to do.
0: Mm-hmm. I want to ask you also, John, because um, this recent uh, ruling from the Supreme Court on race-based admissions and, you know, that can impact programs like uh, some Native American attorneys such as yourself who were able to go to school and, and get scholarships. Uh, how concerned are you that, that going forward, uh, these opportunities, these scholarship opportunities for young Native students won't be there like they were in decades past?
4: Yes, that that's a concern, and again, it uh, it uh, uh, underscores the importance of uh, of uh, Native Americans getting out and voting and uh, supporting people who uh, support Native American rights and uh, things like affirmative action. Uh, these are issues that uh, uh, really affect us, and you know we have to be aware of that and uh, uh, you know do our do our voting and uh, our uh, opponents uh, recognize that and uh, one of the things they're doing these days is uh, trying to pass laws in various states that really keep native americans away from the polls and uh, uh, you know uh, suppress the native vote and a lot of our uh, casework here at the native american rights fund these days is uh, is uh, fighting those cases where they're trying to suppress our native american vote and uh, do a redistricting in a way where our uh, Native votes don't count as much as they should. So uh, this is something that's uh, ongoing and again uh, points out the importance of uh, of being politically aware and politically active uh, in uh, the Native American community
0: and john we're gonna have to begin to wind down the show but here you are uh still in the saddle after all these decades uh executive director native american rights fund uh, just doing so much work and any thoughts of of retiring at any point john and what keeps you motivated what keeps you going to work every day and fighting the good fight
4: well i really like this work and i i see where it can it can make a difference and uh uh, I, uh, uh, you know, really, really like doing it. Like I said, it's the best job in the world. And uh, uh, I uh, had uh, thought about retirement, but unfortunately I lost my wife here two years ago. So I don't really have anyone to retire with. So I'm just gonna keep uh, keep doing, uh, doing the job, doing my work and uh, helping the Native American community.
0: All right. Well, John, I do want to ask you also because I know over the years you've rubbed elbows with celebrities and, and other high-profile individuals, and you've got a, a long friendship with Robert Redford, and, and he's done a lot of work as well in Indian country. And And, and tell us a little bit about uh, that friendship. When did that start and, and how big an influence has have people like Robert Redford and other celebrities been in your career? Well, he's uh,
4: supportive of Native American people and uh, also uh, the— uh, environmental community and uh, since he supports us both, he brought us together to uh, uh, get to know each other better. He had been uh, uh, concerned that we didn't really understand each other. So back in the 80s, he held a big meeting out on the Navajo Nation between environmental leaders and tribal leaders and brought us together. And it's really helped us uh, work with the environmental community and uh, get them to uh, understand these environmental justice issues for Native Americans. and uh, Uh, Robert Redford was a big part of starting that.
0: Mm -hmm. And
4: uh, do you talk with Robert Redford still? I haven't uh, uh, talked with him in some time. Uh, We're both kind of getting up there, so we're both kind of staying close to home, I think, these days.
0: (laughs) Uh, Well, John, any other thoughts you'd like to share, favorite moments from your career, insights into the current political or legal landscape in Indian country? Anything on your mind?
4: Well, I just, uh, again, uh, want to acknowledge how uh, uh, the UNM law school there in Albuquerque played an instrumental role in uh, starting the uh, uh, Indian sovereignty movement with their uh, Indian law scholarship program that they agreed to take on for the Office of Economic Opportunity and starting to teach uh, one of the first Indian law courses ever taught in law schools and uh, uh, most people don't realize that uh, the UNM Law School played a huge role in uh, starting this modern-day tribal sovereignty movement.
0: All right, right here in Albuquerque, New Mexico. John, thank you again for joining us. I I really appreciate you taking the time. You are an inspiration to me and everybody here in our Albuquerque studio and so many people across Indian country. Please, please keep inspiring us, okay?
4: Okay, Sean, thank you for having me.
0: All righty. Well, folks, uh, please, please uh, continue the conversation online. We've got Facebook, we've got Instagram, and we've been getting a lot of great traction for our shows on social media. So keep it coming. Give us a post. Uh, give John Echohawk a shout-out on Facebook or Instagram or any of our other social media channels. And also, please do join NAC again tomorrow. We'll be doing a show about young climate activists working to connect public awareness, the courts, and environmental policy to protect the people in places through Threatened by the effects of climate change until then I'm Sean Spruce stay safe stay sovereign
3: education sovereignty it begins with us that's the theme of the National Indian Education Association's 54th convention and trade show to be held in Albuquerque October 18th through the 21st you have an important role to play in the ongoing effort to reclaim education sovereignty the agenda includes an educator day a student day professional learning opportunities, and the NIEA Awards Ceremony. Registration ends October 13th at NIEA.org.
0: Bonjour. Protect your health and wellness. Help your family and community stay healthy by making sure you and your loved ones are up to date on vaccines. RSV, seasonal flu, and COVID-19 booster vaccines are available now. For more information on vaccines, contact your Indian healthcare provider or visit vaccines.gov. A message from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico, by Kiwanek Broadcast Corporation, a Native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael-Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.